and welcome to Wrestling at Random. I'm Jeremy Deemer. And I am Adam Summers. This is the podcast where every week we review a classic pro wrestling event from a streaming service. And the way we come upon that show for each particular week is that we throw every classic wrestling event that isn't a weekly TV show into the randomizer, run the randomizer, and what it spits out is what we watch. And that is what led us to World War III, 1997 from WCW. In 1997, World Championship Wrestling, WCW, and the World Wrestling Federation, WWF, they were in the middle of a heated wrestling war. Every Monday night, the two companies put on a live wrestling show head-to-head. This uh, week-after-week ratings competition resulted in a complete turnaround in business from the low points of the mid-90s. In September 1995, WCW Nitro events averaged approximately $14,000 per show. By November of 1997... Nitros were averaging approximately $193,000 per show. WCW shows were focused around the battle between the NWO and the WCW wrestlers. The NWO angle began in 1996 when Scott Hall and Kevin Nash, two of the WWF's most popular stars, left to join WCW. With Hulk Hogan turning heel to join the group, the NWO were portrayed as a WWF invasion of WCW almost. The NWO versus WCW battle was building to an epic climax, a match between Hulk Hogan, the champion, leader of the NWO, and Sting, who for years was the face of WCW. This match would take place in December of 1997 at the annual Starcade event. Halloween Havoc in October of 1997 featured a main event of Hulk Hogan versus Rowdy Roddy Piper in a cage match. The Halloween Havoc show drew a company record for pay-per-view buys with 300000 and a gross revenue on pay-per-view of $3.52 million. WCW's pay-per-views in 1997 were successful, but had fallen into a pattern of good wrestling on the undercard, while the main events were drawing the fans in the gates. These main events usually left the crowd flat. They underperformed and usually under-delivered. Which takes us to WCW's World War III, taking place November 23rd, 1997, from the Palace of Auburn Hills. This show was a near-sellout crowd, 17,128 people, a paid gate of $407,831. They ended up also making an additional $140,000 in merchandise. This gate figure, it eclipsed the record that they set just weeks earlier at the Halloween Havoc show in Las Vegas. It eclipsed it by well over $110,000. And the show itself, or the broadcast of the show, opens with what can only be described as a wacky post-apocalyptic video. Uh, There's a soldier wandering the deserted, destroyed landscape of America. Uh, and there's someone talking in his ear and he's talking about what he's seeing. And all of a sudden, what does he happen upon? An old WCW ring. And then he finds a battle royal and he's talking about there's too many of them. And then a nuclear bomb apparently goes off. 
And then there's fireworks, and we we hear Tony Schiavone yell, "Welcome to war!" <laughs> that we do. And uh, the show the show has apparently started, and uh, they they push very hard at the beginning of the show, which opens at the desk that this is a part of the WCW versus NWO war, and that this is the final stop on the road to Starcade 1997, as you mentioned, Jeremy, with Sting and Hulk Hogan being the culmination of that battle. Uh, and, and they also lay out right away that the winner of this three ring 60 man battle Royal, that is the main event of WCW world war three, 1997. Uh, the winner will be the number one contender and will face the winner of the Hulk Hogan sting match. That's taking place at Starcade. Uh, they will face that man uh, at super brawl eight. So a lot on the line here. And that's a theme as the show goes along. Uh, pushing both the WCW versus NWO feud and the fact that uh, you know the winner of this match will then go on to have maybe the biggest match in 1998 uh, at Super Brawl. Shivani Heenan and Tanay were your announced team, and this is actually the first time that Mike Tanay did commentary for an entire WCW pay per view show. He used yeah, to just he come was... in for a few matches. Exactly, it was usually. They'd bring him in for the good matches, basically. The cruiserweight matches, they, they brought him in uh, whenever the luchadors were on. If you remember around this time, he did some great uh, vignettes uh, going to Mexico and talking about the history of Lucha Libre and the masks and everything. But this was his, like you said, his, his entree into being incorporated full-time in the broadcast. And as the show goes along, it's pretty fascinating because today. I had kind of forgotten, and I guess we should both say, Jeremy, that we watched this show on pay-per-view in 1997 when it happened, uh, but there's definitely things that stick out now that maybe didn't stick out back then. I literally and one have of no them memories. Is... I literally have no memories of this show. <laughs> uh, we, I did watch it, but I, I have yeah. significantly more memories of the Halloween Havoc show from the month before. I remember the Eddie Ray match from that show. Yeah, and and but I uh, I had literally no memories of this show, so it was it was like watching it from scratch. Yeah, I'm about 85% there with you. There are a few things I remembered um, as I was watching, but most of it, yeah, was kind of uh, seemed new. Uh, and Mike Tanay being, like, we knew he was sort of, again, he had, a rest, he had a radio show that was called The Wrestling Insider many years before. Like, that was his deal. But he really was, like, the voice of the internet fan on this show. And he was basically, he was the guy that filled in the blanks and in, in pretty much anything with, wrestler histories or interesting facts about wrestlers that uh Shivani or Heenan weren't bringing up today was there to lay all that out many times in my notes it says thank you Mike today for explaining that to me uh we'll yes. get to it as we recap the show um David Penzer is your ring announcer and my memories of David Penzer ring announcer was always it was he was too quiet. Like the broadcasts always had his ring announcing too quiet. <laughs> but tonight, perfect volume. I could hear every announcement. It was uh, it was fantastic. It wasn't like drowned out by the the entrance music or the announced team talking over him. It yeah. was it was. I, th- I thought it was uh, the loudest I've heard of David Penzer. Well, WCW a lot of times the entrance music was pretty high, especially around this time. It was pretty high in the mix, and I feel like it was it also would be pumped into the actual broadcast sound rather than them getting the audio sort of the ambient audio of the music playing in the arena. So I think that probably had something to do with it, but yes, that, that was noticeable. 
Uh, talk about things you know, as the show starts, things or guys or teams or stories that you had forgotten about. Uh, in the opening match, Glacier and Ernest Miller. Ernest the Cat Miller, but this was certainly pre... Uh, Pre-charisma. A, yes, pre-charisma <laughs> Ernest Miller. This was really the... If you remember, prior to the NWO debuting, so this would be well over a year before uh, this pay-per-view, the the big thing that WCW was looking to debut that was going to turn business around was a storyline or a gimmick called Blood Runs Cold. They had run these video features that were very much like something out of Mortal Kombat. And at the end, it would say Blood Runs Cold coming soon. And that ended up being the tease eventually for Glacier. That ended up getting delayed. And he never ended up being, you know, what what they thought he was going to be, why they thought he was going to be that. I have no idea, but that it went from something that they had intended to be this sort of big groundbreaking main event thing to, as we see here, uh, almost glorified jobbers in this match against Ming and the barbarian, the faces of fear who my overriding thought as I watched this match, Jeremy was man, these guys should have just been the dominant force in the WCW tag team division back then. Like I, I liked them back then, but as time has gone by, I have grown to appreciate how awesome they were as a tag team so much more. They were so awesome. They had Jimmy Hart as a manager. And yeah, I loved me some Faces of Fear, uh, especially in this match. It was uh, you had Glacier and, and Ernest Miller uh, using karate. That was kind of their, that was all they did. That was all their and offense. And this was pro wrestling karate uh it was karate at its worst as eric bischoff would say back leg front kicks abound (laughs) that's right and it it was a lot of uh meng and the barbarian just no selling karate (laughs) and for the majority should as they should so uh so i i enjoyed it um we we had a a little uh there, there was a, a cool spot early with uh, Ming in the corner, and the Barbarian was on the floor. And- oh, this was awesome. I, <laughs> I know where you're going. I lost my mind. I, I, I can't believe I don't remember this, and I can't believe that this happened, that the man who did it did it. But yes. Go it, ahead. Yeah, because literally up until this point in this match, it's been karate, no selling, some, and then the Faces of Fear beating these guys up. And then and Miller and Glacier being terrible and blowing spots at hundred percent. Yeah. They were absolutely not good. And yeah, Ming is in the corner. Barbarians on the floor. Ernest Miller runs, basically runs up Meng in the corner and leaps off of Ming onto Barbarian on the floor. It was absolutely it, fantastic. The only thing I can describe it. And again, it's not a moonsault, but the only thing it's similar to me is the old Sabu triple jump moonsault where the first jump as he's running to the corner is leaping off his feet and leaping onto Ming's chest. And he sort of lands almost one foot on him. And then all in one motion, then the second jump is him jumping off of Ming's chest, clearing the top rope and hitting a pretty much a picture perfect crossbody to the floor. It was, I'm honestly trying to remember a spot that was more shocking to me when I've watched a wrestling match. And again, I've been watching wrestling for, you know, 35 years at this point. Wildly unexpected. Just from the sense of who was in the ring, what was happening in the match. And 
like if you told me if you gave me 300 wrestlers to choose that would be and just just show me this spot just silhouetted I don't think I would have ever picked Ernest Miller as being like one of like the first 298 possibilities. <laughs> no, we had uh, the other highlight for me in this match was uh, Ming delivering a back body drop on Glacier with Barbarian standing behind him. He catches Glacier and then turns it into a powerbomb. Yes, that was amazing. Another one of those spots where you see and you're like, why is this not something that that modern wrestling teams do all the time. Yeah, especially if you're a bigger tag team like yes. Yang and the Barbarian were. Uh, they were just doing powerhouse spots. This was a really impressive spot as well. Um, there were a few notes before we leave this match, just uh, on the announcing side, uh, that were talked about. One was that Ming was apparently, or no, Barbarian was a rugby player. Uh, Mike Tanay told us that. And also that uh, Ming uh, was a former sumo and also uh, at, at one point a bodyguard for the Emperor of Japan. Yeah, I, if if anyone else said that, but today I'd have to fact check it. But I'm gonna, yes. <laughs> I'm gonna believe him. You're gonna give you're gonna give that to him. Now the the finish of this match I actually thought was pretty cool too. Where um, you know, obviously it's Ming getting the tongue and death grip. Crowd goes crazy. That that's the win. But basically. Um, he threw a drop kick before then, yes, which was which also that impressive. Was pretty great. Um, he went for the tongue and death grip on Glacier. Glacier ducks, then Glacier runs and clotheslines Barbarian over the top rope. And you know, Glacier's thinking, "Okay, I cleared the deck for Ernest Miller to be able to have a shot with uh, with Ming." But pretty much right as they're both going over the top rope, Ming catches Ernest Miller with the tongue and death grip, and that's it. Match over. And then you, yeah, exactly. And the the faces of fear win. Uh, you've got uh, you, you've got a pretty impressive tag team division at this point. Uh, yeah. With the Outsider, Steiner Brothers, Harlem Heat, Regal and Taylor, these two teams, they ran down the tag team division during this match. Another uh, kudos to the announce team. Uh, that that was really well done. Uh, a totally fine whatever match. It was uh, you know just. Uh, karate guys getting beat up. Uh, super fun for to, if you like the faces of fear, you You'll enjoy this. You, you enjoy this. Um, Do you know what the hottest address on the internet is, Jeremy? Would that be wcwwrestling.com? It is www.wcwwrestling.com because back then you needed to make sure you remember the www. Somebody owns that domain, but it uh, it it's. I think it's just going to redirect you to like malware. So don't, don't go there. <laughs> yeah. Don't go to WCW don't go wrestling there. anymore. But, uh, uh, Mark Madden was interviewing DDP for WCWwrestling.com. These Mark uh, Madden and Jeff Katz, um, fulfilling every stereotype you've ever heard about people on the internet, being, <laughs> uh, adults in their mother's basements. We've got our first title match of the show. WCW TV championship. The, Always esteemed television title, Disco Inferno is your challenger against the champion, Perry Saturn, from yes. Raven's Flock. Raven's Flock, yes. Well, and this is this is also the beginning of a theme because there are a lot of matches on this show that are rematches from Halloween Havoc. And Saturn comes in, he he arrives over the rail accompanied by Raven. 
his music is just a series of sirens. Um, yes. And Raven starts by grabbing the mic and screaming, let the stretchings begin. In that Raven voice. Just I, I'm going to preface this by saying that Raven as a character is probably my favorite character in wrestling history. So my ability to be uh, impartial here is probably not going to be great just in terms of judging the greatness of this, uh, of this segment or lack thereof, because particularly around this time, obviously the heyday of him in ECW, but even the first year or so that he was in WCW, I just thought that everything that, that they did with him and everything he did was so well done. But before we get to Raven, uh, you talked about music and you talked about Perry Saturn. We can't overlook Disco Inferno, who is so much more ridiculous than I remember him being back then. Uh, his music was literally, it, it, finally towards the end of the match starting, there are more lyrics, but it's pretty much just a woman singing, Disco shake fever. your booty, shake your booty, shake your booty, Disco Fever, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah it's... It, it, I assume Jimmy Hart was writing all of the music at this point still. So the, uh, I don't it know. It sure felt that way. Yeah, the, this was not one of his uh, greatest uh, achievements. This is not, uh, uh, it, it's not up there. But we had Perry Saturn. He wrestles in jeans. <laughs> well, yes, because the Ravens flock. Everybody was, everybody was a little bit different. I mean, Billy Kidman was very itchy and he had torn shirts. You had van hammer looking like you know appropriately like a washout of an 80s hair band uh trying to look edgy uh you had sick boy with the ripped up jeans and and yeah so that was that was the aesthetic of raven's flock yeah, there was well, not a lot of nobody's wearing singlets in that group no and they'll make they'll make an appearance later in this match as uh uh saturn was doing uh one of my favorite spots i had forgotten about where he takes him down and just slaps him in the side of the head lets him up oh, does yeah. it again i'm like oh yeah yeah that 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 was familiar uh and i i highly enjoyed that um apparently we got a recap that disco won the tv title from alex wright and then lost it to yes. saturn on nitro and this is his return match yes that's right yeah it was nitro not halloween havoc and so you you had a lot of Disco getting some offense, Saturn getting frustrated, walking around the ring. Disco Inferno was the baby face in this match. I just want to point that out. He was a more aggressive <laughs> yes, Disco, but he was he was the de facto man for whom you were supposed to cheer. And people were people people enjoyed the Disco music, but I don't think enjoyed the Disco Inferno. <laughs> When no, he... you're yeah, you're right, and I think that was in a lot of ways a theme for a lot of this show. Um, the crowd, they were there, but they were largely there to see uh, the NWO first and foremost, and a few other things as as we see throughout the show. But I mean, this was a pretty it was a pretty basic match. The story was, you know, Saturn is the powerhouse, uh, you know, brute. Disco Inferno is the guy who has been a joke, but is trying to get more aggressive, trying to get people to take him seriously. And the announcers mentioned that him winning the TV title was sort of his his gateway to being taken more seriously by the boys in the back and that, you know, he lost it and now he's desperate to win it back and get that respect back. Uh, also, to me, noteworthy is Perry Saturn. If you recall, when he was in ECW before he went to WCW, he was, you know, obviously he had some power, but he was much more of a, you know, a high flyer as well. He He mixed both. 
in WCW at the beginning, he was pretty much, I mean, obviously he was the Ravens fought character, but in ring, they really tried to make him into a WCW version of ECW's Taz. Uh, lots of variations of suplexes, a submission finisher, no nonsense. And at one point, Mike Tanay even references that Perry Saturn can basically, he basically says Perry Saturn can do a lot more than we've seen him do in WCW so far. And we saw some of that on display as uh, uh, Disco Inferno with some offense in the corner, misses an elbow drop, which lets uh, Saturn take control. And he did a really impressive fallaway slam here. Yes. Uh, ended up missing a moonsault off the middle rope, um, but still showing both his uh, Taz-like suplex abilities here and a little bit of high flying with the, the moonsault off the middle rope. Yeah. Yeah, and this was, you know, it, it, I wouldn't, it didn't feel long. Like I honestly think when you look at the the whole show, like this, this was one of the matches that to me was kind of pretty much about what it should have been. Uh, I mean, I guess you could argue whether it should have been on the show or not, but it was, it didn't overstay its welcome. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention with Saturn is that he, when he came from ECW to WCW, he had, if I remember correctly, he had a pretty serious leg or knee injury and, and missed a lot of time then when he when he came into wcw he was not fully what 100 and so that probably played a part into uh you know the in-ring style that he was using at the time but we did see in this match uh, a few pretty crazy things from saturn including uh one spot where he he had crotch disco on the top rope and then uh, went for a sort of a second a cross body from the inside of the ring out while disco was on the top rope and they both crashed to the ring or crash to the floor hard. Yeah. That, that did not look pleasant. And then that, that pretty much led to the, the sequence that then led to the finish. And, and it's one of those things where, you know, if you, if you're a modern day wrestling fan, you're expecting to see a bunch of replays of that. And I was like, Oh, show me a replay, show me a replay. And I, you didn't get anything in 1997. No. Uh, there was one cool, before we get to the finish, there was a cool backslide where yes. Saturn's going for the backslide but sits down on his ass instead of dropping to his knees. Very cool looking backslide. And how, by the way, in modern indie wrestling, has someone not sold a sit-out backslide? A sit-out backslide. Everybody <laughs> likes to sit out on everything for, for added effect. A sit-out backslide is seemingly absurd, but really not because it does provide more leverage. Really a sit-out or you see some guys do the backslide and then forward flip over and get additional leverage on the pin that way. But yeah, that was really cool. And not something I recall seeing too many times. No, it was, it, that was definitely a, a very cool spot. And both guys were outside the ring. We got a uh, disco going over to the flock and hitting a, uh, a stunner, which is called the chart buster. Yes, the uh, chart buster. He hits, which is basically just a, a, a stunner variation. In hits the, 1997. Just, just, at the, at just the, heat, at the height that. of Stone Cold Steve Austin, yes. Correct. Exactly. At they the get... height of Stone Cold Steve Austin, being Stone Cold Steve Austin, being one of the biggest stars, if not the biggest star in all of the business, uh, we had Disco Inferno using his move. He does the chart buster onto Kidman, and then uh, the blonde guy, I think, it, and it's I think that's Lodi. Is that what it is? Uh, yes, yes, who did not have a name. He did not have a name point. yet. Yes. This was I the believe... first appearance of Lodi. But from my my uh, WCW Nintendo 64 video games, I remember Lodi as a character. Uh, he couldn't get 
Van Hammer in the uh, in the chart buster, and that's what let uh, Saturn get him back into the ring. Um, back and, and forth. Saturn killed him into the guardrail. He goes for the chart buster <laughs> right. on, on Van Hammer. Van Hammer sort of braces himself on the guardrail, and because he's big Van Hammer, uh, the chart buster didn't work on him. And then Saturn just, in what could only be described you know, in Tony Schiavone fashion, even though I don't believe he called it that here, it was a flying body attack from from Saturn here that just obliterated Disco Inferno. He was crashed so hard into the guardrail. And uh, uh, back in the ring, Disco uh, uh, Disco gets to the top rope, uh, hits a crossbody. There's a roll through and then right into the rings of Saturn, allowing Saturn to win via submission. Still your WCW TV champion. And a man who likes to say, what are you looking at? At the, t- at the camera very often, apparently. That was his thing. We cut to the locker room where Mean Gene is standing by, letting you know that for $1.59 per minute, you can call now to find out who Mean Gene saw in the locker room who could be in tonight's Battle Royal. Men who you would not expect to be there, clearly trying to, uh, trying to get people to think that some big star from the WWF maybe getting ready to appear. And when you look at it through the lens of this was only two weeks after the Montreal screw job, the, the famed WWF survivor series, 90, uh, 1997 show where Bret Hart was double crossed out of the WWF world title. Uh, and then was on his way to WCW. It's even more interesting to look back at this hotline tease through that lens, particularly when we get to later on in the three ring 60 man battle Royal, some of the, Non WCW regulars who were in uh, in this battle royal, I don't know if you would think of them as one dollar and fifty nine cents or dollar fifty nine cent a minute hotline call worthy professional wrestlers. No, but so, we'll get to if, that if later. I, if I spent a dollar fifty nine per minute to hear that Barry Darso was spotted in the back, I would have been livid. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and I, I'm sure most of our listeners, if you grew up watching WCW, you in your mind are already saying to yourself, "Oh, the hotline? You mean?" One nine hundred nine zero nine ninety nine hundred. Yeah, yeah, we 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 know that by memory. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So he's also joined by the Giant, who you know is Paul White or the Big Show. He, uh, the Giant, is there. He has a broken thumb. He's wearing a black cast on it, and we see uh, a little clip of Hall posting. The giant's thumb slamming it onto the steps. That's how it, it got broken. So, as to prevent him from being able to do his move, the choke slam. So, uh, that's uh, uh, he, he's he he announces he's blown to the gills and looking he's, for Hall. He says, "I'm coming out wide open and blown to the gills." <laughs> he's blown to the gills. So I don't. I, that could mean a lot of things, which we will not get into on this family show. Um, I'm, I was assuming it to mean that he in, he had injected himself with steroids just before this interview, um, but I guess it could mean a lot of things. He also did mention, "I can't choke slam, but I can throw people over the top rope." Uh, this was the beginning of. Some weirdness, though, because so he's talking about throwing people over the top rope. But on this show, the announcers just casually throw out there. And I think it was before the before this promo at some point, but they casually throw out there that for this battle royal, you don't actually have to throw people over the top rope. 
You can throw them through the, the ropes. You can just roll them under the rope to the floor. Basically, get them outside of the ring, and they're out. Yeah, and and as I was mentally saying, what the – why – why is this happening? Uh, before I can even process that thought of uh, of not of having a battle royal where you don't have to go over the top rope, um, I believe it was Mike Tanay who was quickly there to remind us that this will prevent people from going outside the ring and stalling. Yes. And so I'm like, okay, Tanay, you got me again. I'm in. All right, I'm in. I'm I'm okay with this. Let's let's move yes. on. But I will Mike have. T- Many, many <laughs> problems with rules later on yes. in the show. Yes. The, uh, the, as hard as he may have tried on the broadcast to be WCW's continuity, continuity editor, there was not anyone backstage serving that role. And that was seen several times throughout the show, particularly in the, the Battle Royal. Well, well, when we get there, yeah, I've got thoughts. Um, we got, <laughs> likewise. <laughs> Uh, I'm excited about the next match, by the way, Jeremy. This is uh, I was when I looked excited. at the card and saw this, um, and I did remember bits and pieces of this match, and more so just the the several shows long storyline between these two men. This was Yuji Nagata, uh, who people uh, would be familiar with from his long tenure in New Japan Pro Wrestling, and Ultimo Dragon, uh, Yuji Nagata being managed by Sonny Ono. And before we we get into the match, Jeremy, I just want to run into a, a little bit of the history of how Nagata ended up here and why he ended up here. Uh, WCW and New Japan Pro Wrestling had a, by that point, long-standing relationship uh, where uh, New Japan would send wrestlers on learning excursions, as they called it, to WCW. You know, after a few years of a wrestler debuting in new japan and wrestling on the undercards usually in just black trunks black boots they would get sent whether it be to wcw or or mexico or europe they would get sent overseas to hone their craft learn a different style and then come back and be a big star and that was the situation for nagata here he had uh debuted in 1992 in new japan he had been involved in some storylines including the new japan versus uwfi storyline in the mid nineties. Uh, and then he went to WCW, uh, in 1997 and was paired as a heel with Sonny Ono, who behind the scenes also acted as, acted as his translator. And that, uh, that led into, I guess you could say really his only major feud, uh, in the company, which was this feud with Ultimo dragon, where they had wrestled at Halloween havoc, uh, the month prior, Nagata had submitted Ultimo Dragon. There was a running story where he kept injuring Ultimo Dragon's shoulder. Uh, and that led into this match here at World War III, where uh, the additional stipulation was if Ultimo Dragon won, he would get five minutes alone in the ring with uh, manager Sonny Ono. Dragon was coming in with an injured arm. Yes. And uh, apparently he legit had elbow surgery to remove floating bone chips prior to yeah and elbow problems would be a, a continuing story with him in, into 1998 and a botched elbow surgery almost ended his career ended his career for several years he was thought that it was thought that he would never come back he eventually did later on had a brief wwf run wwe run and then returned largely to japan and a little bit to mexico and you know still to this day wrestles but at the time that 
those elbow injuries that led to that surgery were thought to be the end of his career. As the match uh, starts, there was a great spot right out of the gate. Nagata's in the corner. Dragon does his patented handspring back elbow, and Nagata catches the arm, the injured arm, takes him down by the arm, rolls into an arm bar. I was already like, Loving wrestling. I was so excited. <laughs> I'm like, you know, I'm really excited for this match. This is great stuff. Um, we we were informed by the announcers that Nagata will wrestle the NWO's Tenzon at yes. the January Tokyo Dome show. I, if you I, were I wondering, by the way, the yeah, announcer, I, I have, the I announcer have that mentioned that was, in fact, Mike Tanay. It wasn't Bobby Heenan. wasn't Bobby Heenan. It was not Tony Schiavone or Bobby Heenan. It was Mike Tanay. Uh, as always, trying to make sure we understood the importance of uh, the international wrestlers uh, in WCW. They also referenced that Ultimo Dragon, this match was so important to Ultimo Dragon that he left his daughter who was having abdominal surgery so he could come and do this match. This is a bad decision. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Can I also mention, by the way, there was a Saba Simba sign. Oh, I don't good. know if you saw that. No, I didn't. <laughs> Saba Simba, the terrible uh, early 90s gimmick for Tony Atlas in the WWF. There was a sign for Saba Simba, which I believe said, and I quote, sign Saba Simba. No, no. He was already there. Go back to our Clash of Champions 92 <laughs> review if you want to hear exactly. about Tony Atlas and WCW. Yes. Uh, and <laughs> if they if they had gone back and watched that, they would not have been clamoring for said signing. <laughs> no, they would not. <laughs> um Dragon was on the outside going after Sonny Ono. Uh, he hooks him for a, a suplex, teasing a suplex on the floor, saved, of course, by Nagata. We had a long headlock on Nagata, and then he was finally able to belly-to-back suplex his way out. Uh, oh, my God. And this, are you talking about the huge backdrop driver from Nagata? He murdered him. Wait. <laughs> I no no I, yeah yeah I, it, that that wasn't this one it was like a tease for what yeah. was coming up yeah he he absolutely murders him this um, was like this was late mid to late nineties all Japan at its head droppiest from <laughs> from New Japan's Yuji Nagata here on Ultimo Dragon it was it was brutal and the, the reaction from from Bobby Heenan in particular. Uh, was was fantastic. Oh yeah, and and continuing the the head drops, we had pile drivers and pile drivers, lots yes. of Nagata pile drivers. I loved it. It was uh, interesting too to see Yuji Nagata back then uh, with a much wider move set than he had had later in his career, which makes sense because he was relatively early on. He was finding his way. He was a different character in WCW, even though he had the same name. But as someone who watches a lot of New Japan, it was very interesting to go back and, and see Nagata again from this time period and particularly to see him in there with somebody like Ultimo Dragon that he could actually do a lot with because he wasn't put in a lot of situations like that in his WCW run. Yeah, kicks and pile drivers. I loved it. Nagata's kicks were fantastic. And uh, he had a long camel clutch spot. Um, Nagata went back to working on the arm working over the neck and head. So that was his that was the story of the match for Nagata, working on the the injured arm, working over the neck and working over the head of Ultimo Dragon. And Dragon finally makes a big comeback. He comes alive with his kicking combo, which is always impressive, kicks on the ground, and then uh he he had that 
the bottom of the boot, scraping it across Nagata's face. The boot scrape, the Koji Kanemoto boot scrape. Love it. Um, Both men end up down on the floor. Uh, We had a dragon screw leg whip on the floor. Well, this was awesome, though. This was actually one of my favorite spots of the entire show. Ultimo goes for a Pescado, a a slingshot crossbody over the top rope. Uh, Nagata tries to kick him, and uh, Ultimo catches it and hits the dragon screw leg whip. It was fantastic. Uh, Dragon up on the top, hits a big high cross body just as the camera cuts away at impact for no reason whatsoever. I was so mad. That was as WCW production (laughs) as you're going to get, unfortunately. Yeah, that was not... uh... That was not good. And, and as you said earlier about something else, we did not get a replay of this spectacular spot. No, absolutely not. And uh, Dragon back up, uh, back up top. Nagata climbs up to meet him. Dragon goes for a sunset flip into the power bomb, And Nagata, he, uh, he's able to... There, there, so there, there's an attempt. There's a counter. Uh, into a dragon sleeper counter, Nagata ends up tapping, but Ono takes the ref. This sequence is hard to describe. Absolutely fantastic. Yes. Yes. It was the classic heel distraction of the ref. Uh, Nagata, uh, or heel manager distraction, uh, distraction of the ref. I just say Nagata taps out, but the ref doesn't see it. Uh, and yeah, it, 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 it worked. It worked a hell of a lot better than the finish of this match did. I'll say that. Oh, I know. So as much as I'm having fun with this match, the match continues. I'm all right with watching this match continue. Both men are on top. We get a Frankensteiner off the top. The uh, uh, Ono ends up putting Nagata's foot on the rope to break the, the to break up the pin. Ono is again on the apron. Dragon. Okay, here's the here's the big finish. Dragon picks up Nagata for belly to back suplex. He turns with him in the air. Nagata kicks off of Sonny Ono. So uh, he kicks his own manager. Again, it's weird. You in this when you see the replays uh, post match, you kind of understand it a little bit more. But he, yeah, he kicks yeah. off Sonny Ono, but yeah, he knocks him time, down in the process. The the way that it was shot, real time, you couldn't really get a, a you couldn't really see. It looked like he almost accidentally kicked Ono down. Yeah, you couldn't really see that he was kicking off of Ono. They end up landing awkwardly. Nagata. Well, that on... was part of it too, because he kicks off of him, and clearly the idea is for him to push off of Sonny Ono and really push off hard and sort of flip over and in all in one motion land on top of Ultimo Dragon. That really didn't happen that way. He kind of goes back, still pretty much gets hit with the suplex, somehow kind of half rolls through and gets on top of Ultimo Dragon in the scramble. And then referee Billy Silverman counts one, two, three, and four for the win. Yeah, it was a really awkward finish. And uh, yeah, Nagata ends up getting the win. So no. He legitimately counted four. This he was, counted this was four. Not a situation yeah. where no. <laughs> the referee's knee hits the mat on the way down, like, we, like we've seen and it's been talked about before. And it makes the sound of someone counting when they didn't. He clearly counts four, and when they show the slow motion replay of the finish, you see him in slow motion counting, counting four. four. Yeah, and yeah, so uh, tough finish for what was a, a a pretty good match. I don't remember Halloween Havoc match, so I don't know if this was better, worse, or or on par. But I feel like it could have been more if 
Dragon was 100%. Uh, you could tell, you know, his arm was bothering him, but, uh, uh, and it would have been with a, with a better finish. I think it would have left a better taste in our mouths. It was also the end of the feud. Yeah, that was it. Which, this was the end of the feud. He he got cheated. And he never lost. got Sonny Ono for five minutes. He, he never got Sonny Ono for five minutes, and he never got his revenge. He lost. He lost again. And then they both moved on to other things. So, Which is also peak WCW. Yes, so. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So then that takes us to WCW World Tag Team Titles. Rick and Scott, the Steiner brothers, managed by a babyface Ted DiBiase, which is something I almost had no recollection of until this happened. Uh, the noteworthy thing here with the Steiners is we are in the very late stages of the Steiner brothers as the Steiner brothers that everybody knew and loved for most of the nineties. Uh, you know, gone are the, is the very colorful singlets. They're both wearing just shiny black singlets. Scott Steiner is talk about jacked and wide open to the oh, gills he is getting gigantic. He is. It's a very interesting thing because he physically, he's already at big Papa pump levels of being huge. And he was always just crazy Jack, but he is physically, he looks like big Papa pump, but he's, in a black singlet, he's got still has the black hair, you know, receding hairline, ponytail. And as the match goes on, it's just again, it's fascinating to watch because he is still he, while he's not quite as athletic as peak early to mid 90s Scott Steiner, he is still wrestling much more of that athletic Scott Steiner style than the big Papa Pump style. Rick Steiner is still, you know, pretty much, uh, you know, near peak Rick Steiner before he started to fall off, but it's. It's a very interesting time period for both of them. And, and they are taking on the team of Lord Steven Regal and Dave Taylor. And this, uh, well, I mean, first off, just Regal is if anyone needs uh, reminding of this, Regal was amazing at so everything. Amazing. So, so good. good in the ring. So good. Like just his sneer, the look on his face during the entrance, his, his look of just pure and utter disdain uh, toward the fans. Oh, he was, was mad. Just, he was mad at the smoke machine for having oh, too much yeah. smoke in the entrance. Yeah. Well, there was the smoke machine. My God, it was <laughs> it was it was working overtime here. They they appeared out of the smoke, and, and really like mad. I loved it. <laughs> it's amazing because like Dave Taylor is awesome, but he is completely completely outshined by Regal as his tag team partner. Which again, it's not his fault. Dave Taylor, very good in this match. I found I really had nothing bad to say about this. There was a lot of really interesting stuff. Uh, uh, particularly, you could see that uh, that Rick was really enjoying being in there with a couple guys that could really Matt wrestle and get to do that sort of thing, which he, by that point, wasn't having too many opportunities to do. Uh, so, yeah, there's just a lot of really cool uh, little things in this. I know we'll get through it sort of chronologically, but just a lot of fun little things. Regal again, just being such a such a prick. If you excuse my language on this clean podcast, uh, just the the eye poker, the eye rake, and then immediately turning to Dave Taylor with the most gentlemanly tag you've ever seen in your life. Just just greatness abounds from from Regal throughout this relatively short match. Yeah, we had good Taylor and Regal double team beatdowns. We had uh, Scott Steiner. Fighting out, uh, you had the you know the Steiners running wild early. You, you you had a lot of a lot of things that that made this a, a fun tag match, like you mentioned. We had a 
elevated like way up in the air bear hug from dave taylor <laughs> yeah we uh, before we we move on from from regal's awesomeness first uh they, we had a an awesome spot where uh right after the steiners are running wild uh, you just see Regal going nuts outside the ring, yelling at DiBiase to where Dave Taylor comes over to hold him back. And they're both <laughs> falling down on the ground because Regal is absolutely going nuts outside. He's a madman, and I loved every minute of it. <laughs> he also, while we're talking about uh, Lord Stephen Regal greatness, there was a moment where he one of the many European uppercuts that really each him and Dave Taylor hit but he hits one European uppercut on Rick and just the most incredible strut you have ever seen in your life from Lord Steven Regal here. It was, it was so he great. He flexed body and soul and, and then every struts. ounce of his Britishness was, was contained in this strut. He's, he's literally flexing and then strutting. And it was fantastic. <laughs> yeah. It was this, beautiful. <laughs> Uh, there was, a uh, uh, the, the turning point, of course, a huge belly to belly by Scott on Regal. Uh, Rick gets in, uh, he ends up working over Regal, getting to, getting to wrestle with him. Dave Taylor comes in and Rick catches the leapfrog power slamming Taylor. He's, you know, it, it's classic Rick Steiner here. Um, Scott back in, we had, uh, we had Taylor whipping, Scott Steiner under the rope, and Regal just slides his way down the apron so that he can give the knee to the back while while Scott bounces off the rope. Fantastic. I loved that. And uh, then Taylor right there to clothesline him out to the floor. Regal laying in knees outside, and and I'm loving every minute of, of, of Steve Regal. And he, uh, he sends Scott back in the ring, and he does my favorite cover where he grinds his forearm against oh, yeah. your face while the pinning classic, you. The classic Regal cover. Fit Finlay used to do it. A lot of guys that, yes, the, the exactly. The, I am not just <laughs> going to pin you, but I'm no. going to make it hurt your face while I do so. And it's also going to hurt you to kick out while I'm grinding uh, my forearm into your jaw. And, and as soon as as soon as you're going to make a tag, he's also the guy that locks your leg so you yes. can't quite tag. And and when he does this, it was really noticeable. This is the first time it really hit me just how much smaller the WCW ring is oh, than yeah. rings I'm used to. Uh, well, yeah, the WCW ring as compared to the WWF ring was, yeah, it was, I mean, I don't remember the exact dimensions, but WWF ring was what, like 18 by 18 or 20 by 20, something crazy. But the WCW was like 12 by 12 or 14 by 14. It was it was a significant difference. And it really and the other the other thing, just as a quick aside, the, the biggest difference between the rings was, you know, the fact that WWF had the, the actual ropes, whereas WCW had the steel cables for ropes, and those steel cables were much more uh, uh they allowed for much more high flying than than the rather flimsy WWF ropes did. And Rick ends up murdering everyone with clotheslines and power slams. Oh. Steiner lines. <laughs> Steiner lines. And uh, Regal, uh, so all four men are in. Um, Scott ends up backdropping Taylor onto Regal. Yes, this was a great spot as well. <laughs> that was fantastic. Dumps Taylor over the top. Regal's hoisted up on Scott's shoulders. Rick off the top rope with the bulldog, and it's over. Steiner successfully defend the tag team titles. 
this this was the Steve Regal show, and I everybody was having a great time, even the Steiners. Yeah, this yeah, was fun. Great. It Super was fun. short. It didn't need to be any longer than it was. In a lot of ways, this felt more like a Nitro match than a pay-per-view match. It definitely that's wasn't perfectly a pay-per-view fine. quality match, but it was uh, super fun. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This was, I mean, to this point, I would say this was the best thing on the show. Mean Gene's on the ramp, and J.J. Dillon comes out, and his official title at this time is Chairman of the Executive Committee of WCW. He was sort of the... Yeah, they didn't call him the president. They didn't call him the CEO. He the wasn't the general manager. He wasn't yeah. the commissioner. He wasn't the matchmaker. But that really, he was basically the guy that laid down the law on behalf of the other guys. And he explains how he's tried for seven months to get Raven to sign a contract. He's He has 24 hours from this point to sign the contract. Otherwise, he can't be on Nitro. And we will have seen the last of Raven tonight. Yes, and, and this was actually one of the things that WCW did very well in terms of continuity or explaining things in that the whole deal with Raven when he came in is that he would always be at ringside. He would enter from over the guardrail, uh, but he would all the matches would always be notice qualification. And this was the way they got around that was, well, he wasn't actually signed. And, you know, so, you know, he doesn't have have to he doesn't have to work under the rules that everyone else does and the announcers even as the match went along said you know this is this is under raven's rules and and either way this might be the last time we see him wrestle this way because either he's going to be gone or he's going to be signed to wcw scotty riggs former american male yes Rick. far less uh there were no there's no american males music here there was no, uh, there were no suspenders. This was all business, Scotty Riggs. All business, Scotty Riggs with an eye patch, not not a yes. pirate. He uh, apparently lost an eye when Raven did a drop toe hold on a chair. Yes. Um, I don't. I, I assume that was on television. And oh yeah. We did not get a a recap. We just got a, a brief explanation that uh, Raven took his eye. That's why uh, he's wearing the eye patch. Raven is trying to recruit him to join the flock. So we get a Riggs versus Raven match. And Raven was sitting ringside. And so he just hops the rail. And the flock follows him over the rail. Kidman grabs the mic of all guys. Yes, and... the, the voice. <laughs> you have Raven in your group. And the mouthpiece is Billy Kidman. Billy Kidman. It, He's... Itchy Billy Kidman. And he says... No DQ or no fight. Ah, yes, Ravens rules. (laughs) Yes, and we were off to the races here because pretty much right after he said that, uh, a a huge crossbody over the top rope by Scotty Riggs, and we are in the midst of a brawl on the floor, uh, and Riggs in control, punching him repeatedly, and as I have written down here, just Raven was such a great seller. He was just so good at, at staggering and just getting beat up and and just looking as though he was in peril. And at one point I actually thought that the story of this match early was going to be that Raven wasn't going to fight back, that he was just going to let Riggs beat him up because he was just, he was getting pounded for a good portion of the match. Um, There's a great line. uh, Raven gets the foot up in the corner, gets control. And then Bobby Heenan 
uh, sort of in this match obsessed over uh, Scotty Riggs's eye patch and just casually says that the best move for Raven to do would just be to slide the eye patch over, blind the blind the good eye, and then just pummel him. He's not wrong. And, and then Tony Tony <laughs> says in response to all this from Bobby, Tony says, and I quote, Bobby, you are not a good man. <laughs> Which just was it's lovely. And and Heenan will only fall off as this show goes on and become more and more useless. Well, uh, but to be fair, I understand it to an extent with Heenan because he would get frustrated because he was used to having, you know, saying what he would say. And then, you know, the, the face play-by-play guy would go along with it, would play along, and then would get just completely offended. And outside of this one time where Tony said to Bobby, you are not a good man. Tony would just never bite when Bobby would try to take it down that road. He never would. Like they, they just weren't a great fit together. No, no. And uh, so we were also informed that uh, Riggs has lacked a purpose since Bagwell joined the NWO. Yes. That was said a few times throughout this match. They actually, it was pretty great because today and then Tony actually talked about that Riggs has floundered since the breakup of the American males, which in some ways begs the question is floundering worse than failing because the American males, they were not a super successful. <laughs> That's tag what I was going to ask. I'm like, I'm like, they I did don't, not I don't... exactly run the tag team division in WCW in 1997 or, or any time really like they existed and they were okay. And they may, I, I would have to go back and look, they may have had a brief tag title run. I think they did, but it was not as if this was like the rock and roll express and they made it to the mountaintop. And then, you know, Bagwell threw it all away by joining the NWO. This was like just getting off the sinking ship. So yeah. Um, big spot for Riggs was uh, reversing and getting Raven in a drop toe hold where he hit the chair. So yes, and the crowd, this was the point the crowd to the, I will say this outside of NWO stuff and maybe flair later, this was probably the thing that the crowd was most invested in. And it was all Raven because Scotty Riggs going into this, nobody cared about no, Scotty Riggs. Zero. Yeah. Absolutely. But the story of this match was, it was simple and easy to follow. Even if you hadn't been watching the TV, it was very clear what was going on. Riggs throws the chair. Raven catches it, drop kicks the chair into Raven Riggs bulldogs Raven onto the chair, still can only get a two count. Um, Raven ends up DDTing Riggs, calls for the microphone. Well, first, though, first, uh, bull, uh, Riggs hits the, the bulldog on the chair, which was awesome. It came off very well, but he kind of hesitates in covering in covering Raven, which is a bit of foreshadowing, you know, of, you know where Riggs' head was. And then, yeah, he, he uh, Raven gets out and then... Uh, yeah, Riggs picks him up, goes for a suplex. Raven flips out of it kind of awkwardly, which is, again, it's fine. It's Raven. He's Raven, not, you know, yep. this great athlete. It works. But then Raven hits the DDT, grabs the mic. He screams for the microphone. So the match is still going at this point. He grabs the mic, and he's pretty much just starts saying, I didn't want to do this to you. I didn't want to hurt you. Why didn't you join me? I feel your pain. <laughs> then he hits it with another DDT, tells him, this is hurting me worse than it's hurting you. Why didn't you listen to me? Yells, I feel your pain a bunch more times. Hits him with another DDT. And this was just awesome. Bobby Heenan is flipping out, talking about how deranged Raven is. Uh, referee Mickey J uh, employs the 10 count uh, while Raven sits slumped against the, the ropes. Riggs does not get up. 
Uh, the crowd, for some reason, kind of expected Scotty Riggs to get up after three DDTs, which I, I admire their optimism, but I don't know what would have ever made them think that was going to happen. Uh, the rough counts I, I, 10 match I over. I, I think they wanted him to get up just to get DDT again at this point. <laughs> accurate. Yeah. Accurate statement. Uh, the, the flock comes over. Uh, Bobby Heenan talks about Sigmund Freud who have had a field day with this guy. Uh, Billy Kidman, by the way, if you're keeping score at home, still itchy. Uh, the flock just visually is they are every bit the group of misfits that they are promoted to be. Uh, Van Hammer picks up Scotty Riggs and carries him away through the crowd as the flock exits. Uh, and we're left to wonder what has become of Scotty Ritz. Yeah, and there was one dude in Raven's flock I couldn't identify, and I had to. Look it, was up. it Sick Boy? It was Sick Boy. Uh, that was a uh, yeah. I'm like, oh, okay, Sick Boy. I don't know. I don't know his story at all. But uh... well, the crazy thing with him too is, so he eventually, like, he was there for a while, a long time without ever doing anything. And then, if I remember correctly, like he got signed by WWF. And then they just pretty much did nothing with him. And then he eventually just faded away into obscurity. We've got Steve Mongo McMichael. Oh, Jesus Christ. With a steel pipe. And he's going to fight Bill Goldberg. And I'm excited because this is 1997 Bill Goldberg. This will be, this will be short. This will be uh, Mongo getting destroyed. I'm in. Um, well... A couple of things. First, explain what happened. Then I'll, I will explain to you a little bit of where we are at in the arc of Bill Goldberg. Sure. Yeah. The uh, Goldberg's music plays. Mongo grabs the mic and says, you're not going to see the match you thought you were going to see tonight. Get a camera back there. We cut to the back. Goldberg is down. He's face first on the concrete in the back. You're underselling how terrible Steve McMichael was. Uh <laughs> In every conceivable he's way. He's so bad understand. at everything. Yeah, no, he's terrible. So he, he grabs the mic and he starts talking about geese and gander and old dogs and new tricks. Yeah. And then he talks about Mr. Goldberg isn't the only one willing to sneak up and attack someone. But just he says it in the most Mongo way possible. He's like half hillbilly, half Chicago, all Steve McMichael. Like it's he, he's one of those guys that had a voice and an accent that was entirely unique unto himself. Um, and then just when you, when you watch this show and you hear him on the mic briefly, just imagine whatever it was, maybe the first year, the first, however many months of nitro where we had to listen to Steve McMichael. He was the color every guy. week. He was the, it was, it was Eric Bischoff, Bobby Heenan and Steve McMichael. Oh, it's a miracle that that show succeeded. Oh. <laughs> especially with him transitioning to the ring. That's no better. <laughs> yeah, no, it's no better. Um, uh, so apparently, uh, Goldberg is getting medical attention. Mongo's challenging s for someone in the back to come fight him. He says, quote, Mongo is ready to wrestle. Come on down. So Goldberg was unable to wrestle because he had a legit groin injury at this point. So, uh, due to a legit groin injury, that's why they did the injury angle, and there was no Goldberg on the show. There was no Goldberg in the Battle Royal later to come. Yeah. But at this point, he like he had had some wins, but he was not the one hundred percent killer Goldberg. Like he had had like a fifty fifty match with uh, with McMichael at Halloween Havoc, and my my overriding thought when I was watching this match, even though Goldberg wasn't in it. I was thinking, just imagine 
just imagine if they had done 50-50 booking with Goldberg and Steve McMichael. And McMichael had gotten his, you know, had avenged his loss. Everyone said, gotten his win back. Just imagine if you never had the Goldberg win streak because early on he lost to Steve McMichael. Oh, what could have been? The (laughs) uh, Deborah McMichael ends up dragging Alex Wright out. Deborah McMichael. The, The only thing worse as a TV wrestling character than Steve McMichael was Deborah McMichael. Queen of WCW sash and crown. Alex Wright does not want to, to wrestle in this match. The fans are very mad that they are not going to see Goldberg. And Alex Wright ends up uh, attacking Mongo at the bell. Mongo with bad clotheslines. Alex thinks he's leaving, but Deborah drags him back again. I hate this match. This match sucks. Oh, it was it was horrible. Everything you could have imagined about a uh, a Steve McMichael Alex Wright match. This this was that. There was a weird spot with uh, an Irish whip into a side slam that just no no, no. didn't he sen- work. He sends him into the ropes and then he lifts him up and then he falls to the mat. And yes, and that description is better than it actually <laughs> was. It looked terrible. It, it was absolutely Mc, horrible. McMichael, he was such a weird wrestler in that, for one, he was old by the time he started wrestling. You know, a, a you know a, a very very well accomplished NFL player, Super Bowl winner, all that good stuff. But he just he never quite took to it. I've never seen a more stumbly wrestler. He took so many little like pitter patter steps that would put him in weird positions and have him off balance. He also, I don't know that I've ever seen a wrestler rely more on throwing guys into the ropes than he did. Like every bit of his offense was, was started by him throwing guys into the ropes. He also relied very heavily in this match on the side slam. Yes. Uh, Yeah. Mongo throws Alex right into the ropes and then, and he hits the ropes like it hurts. And yes. then and then stumbles into a side slam. What is happening? I yeah, how do you stumble <laughs> into doing a side? Yeah, it, it was the other thing about McMichael as a wrestler. His idea of selling was to act like he was falling asleep. Like when he gets pounded on in the corner, he just sort of leans his head back and closes his eyes. And the same thing when he's you know when he's taking offense when he's down on the mat. Just very weird. Yeah. Uh, so. McMichael throws Alex Wright chest first into the buckle. He turns around. McMichael's in his three-point stance, hits Alex Wright with a tackle, clipping the knee, does it again, clothesline by Mongo. He almost trips over Alex Wright's legs while he's laying on the ground. (laughs) Calls for the tombstone. The Mongo spike, which, by the way. Which is the Mongo spike. When you have a guy as not good at anything as Steve McMichael, the last thing you want to give him as a finisher is a move where he could break where on a good day, as we've seen when executed the variations of the, the tombstone, when executed by very good professional wrestlers, you can still break someone's neck. So you give the tombstone pile driver to this guy as a finisher. Mongo wins. This was over. This match went three minutes and 36 seconds and it felt significantly longer. I find it hard to believe that it was that short. It felt like the longest thing on the show to this point. It did, but things are about to turn around on the show. We're about to get a couple good matches in a row. Yes, but first, back to the internet position. This time with Saturn, who 
is as deadpan as you get and says, quote, I beat you with my hold when talking about his match with the Disco Inferno. That was compelling. Uh, and then, yeah, it was Mark Madden and Jeff Katz. And then we had Tony Schiavone talking about the technology of the day, talking about if you have real audio and the right plugins, you can listen to this. Part two of this show, we will cover the WCW Cruiserweight Championship and the rest of the show, the United States Championship, the Battle Royal, all coming up as we head into part two of our recap of World War III.